Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking Freshers' Week and the return to campus, skills policy and Black Lives Matter. It's all coming up. Up, up until six months ago, everything in the media was negative about universities. Um, there, there were so many stories running. And I, I think the government has, um, I think it did a, an initial calculation on the importance of um, overseas students' income and education continuing and us continuing to graduate students that go into um, professions, healthcare professions and, and other ones that have um, an annual turnover. And I think since then it's actually consistently been... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, recording from home in London at the start of what might be the second wave of the pandemic and government higher education policy. Uh, to help me flatten that curve of news, I'm joined by three brilliant guests in Bushy Park. We have Sean Waring of University of Northampton. Sean, your highlight I'm of the week, please. Oh, I'm challenged, I'm challenged. Um, I'm training for a half marathon. Every time I get a run in, I'm so happy. <laughs> and in Canterbury, we have Joe Cooper uh, of Imperial College London. Joe, something that made you smile this week? Oh, well, I was hoping the highlight of the week was going to be the US presidential debate, but I don't think we can say that. And hopefully we'll be a bit more civil with each other today. <laughs> let's, let's hope so. And out somewhere in the West Country, we have Wonky's associate editor, David Kernhan. That's DK to you and me. DK, your highlight of the week, please. Well, it's always a delight to hear Gavin Millinson in the House of Commons. So I imagine we'll get more to that later. Right, let's dive straight in. Students are packing their bags and moving into accommodation, returning to campus. The term is getting up and running. Uh, The government is nowhere to be seen. Sean, how's it looking from your perspective? (laughs) Oh, well, I've tried to keep my head down on it, actually. We've had, it's been, you know, as you can imagine, an enormously busy time. We've been planning for this moment for four or five months. Um, we have to keep adjusting the plans. Uh, we keep having to you know, review government policy and advice that's coming in and local advice from Northamptonshire. Um, and I, I find a lot of the media a distraction, actually. I mean, I did I did listen to the you and yours that you were on earlier in the week, Mark, because I thought it'd be really interesting to get the, um, the, the perspective of, of parents, families and um, students from all over the country. And it was interesting. Um, but I think I found that the kind of the torrid, frenzied pace of the media wasn't really helping um, us think clearly through the issues where we had to take responsibility for things and make, you know, best decisions with a, a huge amount of uncertainty and lots of interdependent variables. So um, I'm really pleased to see students come back onto campus. Uh, we've had teaching this week. Um, it's been socially distanced. There haven't been many students um, or staff, indeed, wandering around the campus in between times. Um, but the rooms have been occupied, and that means I think that, as far as I can tell, all the plans we put in place for um, the blend of face-to-face and, and um, online teaching are going as well as we could hope at this point. Um, we are we are dealing with high flex, which you may want to talk about, because I know uh, Jim came out against high flex earlier, I think, uh, a few months ago, but we couldn't work out another way to do that where we had students who had to be off-site and students who had to be on-site, um, and we didn't have enough resource to teach them separately. So we are, at the moment, trying to teach them um, synchronously 
Um, and that's obviously challenging technically and in, and pedagogically. Of course, and uh, you mentioned the you and yours. The thing that struck me about that, and, and listening into lots of uh, popular radio shows over the last week or so, is that kind of concern of parents um, starting to cut through, and and they're calling into Radio Four, they're writing to their MPs, and that they're, they're certainly making um, making making waves. And, and I guess the government has, has has noticed that they've not really found a way of responding yet, but they've noticed it. And that, that was that was kind of my takeaway from that. Are you seeing? Um, are, are you seeing kind of anxious parents uh, as as they're dropping off their off off their children? Or are they kind of talking to the university? Um, I, I'm not getting it directly. I, I, actually, one of the things I found interesting about that your you and yours was um, what I thought was actually a, a rather infantilising approach. Um, the the presenter kept referring to you know, did you let your children do this? Um, and she kept correcting herself. Um, but I, I, you know, but obviously it, it's a very difficult time because um, I've got a 17-year-old um, and talk, talking to a lot of parents, and I do, you know, I I fully appreciate what an anxious time it is. Um, um, but my, you know, my my daughter says, I, I said to her, well, would you go? And she was like, yeah, I'd really want to get started. I want to get stuck in. And I, I think, well, I think one of the things we've we've done wrong actually in the whole representation of this is to treat. You know, planet campus as if it's different from the rest of the world. And I think, well, you know, students have been in, they've, they've been coping with all the things that have been happening the last five months, six months. They don't expect university to, to, you know, to suddenly be this completely different world where masks don't have to be worn or, you know, there isn't social distancing. Um, it, I, and I don't think we should compare this year necessarily to previous years as if we could wind the clock back because we can't wind the clock back. All we can do is make this year as good as it can be. And I, I really think we're doing that. I really sympathised with a parent who said, he was a, an academic as well, and he said, what we're doing is really hard. We're doing the best we can. It's really important we do it properly. And I totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Joe, um, how are things looking at Imperial this week? It's uh, Our students are arriving this week, so um, uh, or the majority of the un- undergraduates are arriving this week. So um, kind of lots of fingers crossed that it goes well. But just to kind of talk to Sean's point, we've, you know, the past six months of preparation has been, I've never seen anything like it in, in higher education. We forget six months ago, we were working out how to do assessments online so we could finish the last academic year. And then those kind of uh, contingency plans that we've been putting in place have, 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 been, have meant that people have working incredibly hard, both on the teaching side and the learning technology side, uh, but also on the operational side in terms of um, managing accommodation, making sure the, the, uh, the campuses can be as secure uh, as possible possible putting testing and uh, tracing um, operations uh, in place in short order so I think they're kind of planning for the worst and hoping for the best approach hopefully that 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 will get us through I think just to talk to the point in terms of um, the student experience I think we just have to do the very best we can for students to get the best educational and border experience um, that they can get under these circumstances. And as, as, as Sean said, it isn't it isn't normal circumstances. We can't we can't pretend it is. But I think for these eighteen year olds that are starting university now, they've I mean they've had a pretty challenging few months themselves with the um, with the results fiasco. Uh, but also they've been locked down at home. They haven't been socialising with their, their school friends in the in the same way that they would want to in their last year of school. So I think if I were 18, I'd be wanting to get to university irrespective of the of the circumstances. Hmm. I mean, it, and, and if it all concerned, it's going to be a bit of a rocky term. And as you say, the, the, the plans keep keep changing. I mean, just in you know, I'm in London as well, and and all the rumours point to to further restrictions from next week, which is going to obviously impact on um, uh, on all the universities in the capital. Um, I mean, DK. Um, I mean, we've been obviously writing about on on the site how we've got here, and you know, you had a really good piece this week. I thought about 
you know, how do we how do we end up in the in this situation? Um, I mean, one of the one of the striking things from the very start of this has been pretty much the absence of, of particularly the UK government's sense of what it what it wants to happen here. I mean, it sort of tacitly endorsed the the kind of the the, the gearing up of of the new academic year and the, and the start of term um, and and the return to campus, but it hasn't really set out a vision for you know what it expects of of the sector um and also how to kind of mitigate some some of the worst effects of um uh, of the of the pandemic for students and and universities it's not really um has it and i suppose that that's um exemplified in the one question that has cut through this week beyond anything else to do with universities which is will students be allowed home for christmas it's a ridiculous question if you think about it, because obviously nobody knows what's going to be happening in December. I mean, there's um, not just the virus, there's any other number of chaotic and random things that could happen that could stop or could allow students to go home early. But that is what has cut through. It, it uh, makes for a good headline, it makes for good politics, and it's the conversations about that in the media, in the House of Commons that we've seen this week, that have foregrounded just how shambolic the uh, government's preparations for the start of university team uh, term has been. Um, we had the spectre on Tuesday of uh, Gavin Williamson um, announcing and um, re-announcing a load of measures that were complete nonsense. He talked several times about the £256 million available to boost student hardship funds. He's announced that several times before. It was originally supposed to be $277 million. It was cut uh, back in May. It's actually meant to be student premium funding to support students from disadvantaged backgrounds. He talked about um, um, a £100 million allocation to universities to support digital provision, which doesn't actually exist. As far as we can tell, it refers to an allocation that um, universities can't even get. He reckons for some uh, reason you can apply to the student's loans company if you're uh, running out of money, which prompted myself and uh, Jim Dickinson to ask them for loans. Uh, They don't actually provide extra loans if a student uh, runs out of money. That's not a thing, and it's ridiculous that he thought that. And again and again, you're seeing um, basic errors in his understanding of the brief, in his understanding of what's going on. And if you trace that uh, back to the poor quality of the response of DfE to what's happening in the sector and what's clearly been visible as what's going to happen in the sector, of course there were going to be spikes in and around university campuses when student returns. Um, in the autumn. That is absolutely basic epidemiology. It's the kind of thing you'd learn in the first uh, two uh, weeks online on a Zoom call if you were doing an epidemiology um, undergraduate degree. If you bring lots of people together from all over the country and some of them have the virus and some of them don't, lots of people are going to get the virus. We knew this was going to happen and it just underlines how poor the preparation has been not on uh, behalf of universities, as we've heard so far. Universities have done an amazing job. Students' unions particularly have been spectacular at what they've done. But the 
central backing has not been there from a DFE that seems much happier to talk about culture wars. I, I've got a couple of positive things to say about the government, actually. So. Oh, thank you. Please do, yeah. <laughs> um, one is, I was just worried um, that wasn't balanced. Always, always balanced on the, on the monkey show. <laughs> um, well, one is, I think, um, up, up until six months ago, everything in the media was negative about universities. Um, there, there were so many stories running. And I, I think the government has... Um, I think it did a, an initial calculation on the importance of um, overseas students' income and education continuing and us continuing to graduate students that go into um, professions, healthcare professions and, and other ones that have um, an annual turnover. And I think since then it's actually consistently been um, positive in its descriptions of higher education. And um, although, yeah, although no, although Gavin Williamson's, um, you know, there were so many errors, I totally agree in all those packages um, the funding packages. What he did, he did do was say universities are working hard, they're well prepared, and what they do is important. And um, I, I think that is a real turnaround, and I, I could do with a bit, bit of that at the moment, a bit of support and encouragement so I, from the government. Um, I completely agree with that. Yeah. Um, it's like um, the it was round about the time of the A levels. It's almost as if a public first uh, poll uh, came in which uh, kind of made people realise oh yeah, people like universities, we can't just slag them off the whole time for cheap wins in red wall seats. People in red wall seats have children that want to go to university we need to be a little bit more supportive of, of that ambition. So you're completely right, the mood has changed which The mood has changed, I think, I, think, I think you're both right, but um, I, I, I hate to be the kind of bearer of bad news I think, I think, <laughs> a, I think a hard rain is coming to borrow a um, a government government phrase. We've got the, the a free speech bill, uh, which doesn't look very good. Um, and and if you if you read between the lines of some of the things, for example, in the restructuring regime, um, you know what how they want to reshape the sector, um, or in their terms of reference for, for for reviewing the NSS, there's some very disparaging things in there about uh, about what happens at university, uh, quality of teaching, and um, about students' unions and their activities. And that, you know the sort of implication that yes, you know, universities are the the, the left wing madrasas, and and it's it's time to crack down. And, and we know there are many different actors in government at the moment who, um, you know, that that is their agenda. Plus, one more one more thing is I, I would say is um you know this question of fees is coming back. So we are you know we're due a, a full response to Orga, and we'll come on to come on to that later in the show. Um, but this this point about you know cutting cutting the headline fee level could could well rear, rear its head and obviously that is that is a major major challenge for, for universities I'm, i might be clutching at straws with this positive point but i i completely agree with um you know the epidemiological car crash we could have seen coming from a long way away as um you know students leave hometowns and travel all over the country so i think actually talking about what happens at christmas is at least an improvement on that because we are three or four months ahead um, and I think it does focus people's minds as well on the the complexity and the difficulty of the decisions um, and I, I do think I think in the, the universities we I, I feel that we've been three months ahead of the government in our thinking and our planning but at least at this point we're all looking forward to that date and thinking all right that's something to navigate and we have to lay the plans ahead of time. I think I think I was just going to say, I think, think on that, obviously, we're at the beginning of the academic year. And although we know it's a myth that 
universities go quiet during the summer and you know um not much, not much work happens we know that that's 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 never been the case but i i am concerned putting my hr hat on i'm talking to sean's point about the need for a bit of encouragement and positivity um that staff and student officers who have been working incredibly hard over the summer to get prepared for this point uh, i think we just need to kind of uh, be mindful of people's mental health we need to be mindful of burnout we've got to be got to get through this academic year in incredibly challenging circumstances and the people that are delivering that and supporting that on our campuses have spent the, the entire summer um, working on contingency plans, uh, get, getting prepared for this point. So I think it's going to be a real challenge for people working in the sector uh, over, over the over the next few months. And those of us in, in, in leadership roles need to be mindful of that. I think I think it's exactly right. I mean, getting to Christmas feels like absolutely kind of phony war. Getting to half term mm. in one piece for you know for many people, I've never seen anything like it. Talking to people working in universities at the moment, I mean people. People are um, people are burnt out. People are exhausted. I mean, the level of um, kind of strategic overload is is beyond uh, beyond anything I think most people have experienced in their professional lives. And, and, and I think add add to that. Um, I'm sure it's the same for, for most campuses. To enable as many uh, as much teaching research activity to happen um, as possible, uh, we've got thousands of staff who are who are still working from home and are going to be for some. Uh, foreseeable future so we've got a completely different organizational culture to deal with where we've got people who are working incredibly hard on campus keeping things going got people who are stuck at home feeling kind of isolated and all uh, all of whom working incredibly hard but the fabric fabric of the organizations we work for is kind of fundamentally different to to how it was six months ago and we haven't really had time to consider the impact of that just completely agree with joe um we were commenting that staff were coming back um, when we were seeing them on campus in September looking as tired as we'd normally expect to see them in June, July. And I think the the mixture of um, ha- having to be able to respond at short notice to um, assessments changing, as Joe mentioned, um, a lot of our systems had to change. Um, we had to respond very rapidly. We had to do a lot of communication at the same time. Um, and, and we've we've had to change things um, on the fly as well. You know, we've, we've started to do things and we've realised as, as we've rolled out, it doesn't work like that. And we've had to change it. Um, and people are exhausted. Um, and I totally agree with Joe as in terms of the importance for leadership of really keeping people's morale up and supporting them and, and checking in on their mental health. And Christmas seems like a long time off at this point. Um, and I think people are due a break and obviously nothing, nothing coming up quickly. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, this is Jonathan Cart. I'm Professor of Public Policy at King's College London and a Senior Advisor at the Nails Group. And I recently wrote a piece with Simon Lancaster also of NELS, that argues that the forthcoming comprehensive review needs to focus on ridding universities of the research deficit, which across the sector currently accounts for four billion pounds per year. This arises because of the lack of full economic costs on research grants from research councils, government departments and charities, to name a few. Whilst this additional £4 billion of research funding would clearly be welcomed by finance directors and chief finance officers across the sector, our key argument is actually not a financial one. It is one that is focused on the mission of universities. And we argue in this piece that this technocratic change in moving to full economic costs, supplemented, if you like, by more QR funding, and a refreshed mechanism to support charity funding will liberate the mission of universities for a post-COVID world. 
Now, every week on the podcast, we're delving deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. So if England was curious in only having two universities, a situation that effectively ran from the 15th to the 19th century, Scotland was more generous in having universities. St Andrews, its first university, is a result of the Avignon Schism, the separation of the papacy into two, slightly warring factions, and therefore it started off in 1413. If the Scots had followed England, then St Andrews would have sufficed. Students would have just travelled to it, it would become a fully residential university. But they didn't. Glasgow got a university in 1451. Papal Bull of Glasgow University is a fabulous thing, and well worth a look on their website, uh, you'll find the whole text. But this is my favourite bit. Glasgow, as being a place of renown and perfectly, particularly well-fitted, therefore, where the air is mild, victuals are plentiful, and a great store of other things pertaining to the use of man is to be found, there the end of the Catholic faith may be spread, the simple instructed, equity and judgment upheld, reason flourished, the minds of men illuminated, and their understandings enlightened. Great mission statement. Aberdeen got its first university, King's College, in 1495, and Hector Boyce had gone from St Andrews to Paris, came back um, uh, and started... Uh, the college there. He was an archetypal um, medieval scholar. He travelled all over the place, but he was beginning that new humanistic trend. He was a friend of Erasmus. Then the Reformation happened in Scotland. So, in all the turmoil, one figure stands out. It's changing things. Andrew Melville uh, first reformed Glasgow, then he went to St Andrews, introducing radical change to the curriculum and making the institutions thoroughly Protestant. Edinburgh joined in by setting up its own university in 1582, the town council being the driving force behind that. But with Aberdeen, it got a different kind of um, reform. What they did is they added another university. So, whereas King's College was in the old town, Marischal, Marshall in the new town, was added in 1593. It's a completely separate university. There are two universities in Aberdeen. There are two in England. What makes them interesting, of course, is that you come with a full set of statutes and regulations for Aberdeen, which sets out the kinds of things that they want the students to do. Uh, and these might be relevant to things today. As with many of the medieval universities, there's lots of rules about being locked up at night. Helpful at the moment. Uh, there are some particular issues about uh, not composing lampoons against your fellow students, not being abusive to each other or carrying weapons, the standard kind of stuff uh, that we find. Um, but there's good rules about no loitering, no standing in front of the door of the gymnasium. Um, some no rule. Uh, there's a lovely rule here about uh, not emptying your chamber pot through the window. Uh, you must not defile the public approaches with urine or filth. Let uh, no one climb over the walls of the garden of the academy. He who does otherwise, let them be beaten in public by all the teachers. All students are passed the night within the bounds of the academy. He who stays out on any night is to be beaten in public. He offends in this way frequently, let him be expelled from the entire academy. It shall be impermissible for anyone to stay outside with the students inside the gymnasium or have the use of the bedroom here. No guests. So, in case you're looking for a set of rules to handle the current crisis, um, I re thoroughly recommend Colin McLaren's book on Aberdeen students. Find a nice set of regulations at the back um, and then you can work your way through how you can handle that. The Scots had a sensible setup. Lots of universities, locally based, um, and they continue to have more universities in England all the way through to the 19th century. So, 
On Tuesday, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced a suite of measures around skills, uh, drawing quite a bit from, from the Augur review of uh, the last couple of years. DK, can you talk us through the, the highlights? Okay, so the story goes, our Prime Minister was uh, desperate to announce something that was positive, that was something that was uh, doing some of the things he talked about in the manifesto that was uh, just a happy thing to say. So what he got given is uh, the first chunk of the Augur response, as far as we can tell. Now, this is very, very... Um, early days, so we've got very little detail. He's, he's uh, painting in big, bold primary colours. We've not got the fine detail of this, and even though there's a, another appearance in the House of Commons from Gavin Williamson this morning, which I'm very much looking forward to, um, I don't think we're going to get much in the way of detail. The two big things, in order of size, I think, the biggest is this lifetime skills guarantee, which allows any adult who has not got a level three, that's like an A-level or equivalent qualification, access to a free college course at that level from April 2021, which will be paid for out of the National Skills Fund. This, it would be difficult to find anyone in the country that could be against that kind of idea. It's a big spending uh, 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 promise, or it looks like, we haven't seen the details yet, but it does mean a lot more people in the UK will have chance to develop or to acquire those uh, kind of mid-level skills that would give them access to um, a course at a university or college, to a higher degree apprenticeship, to a higher technical qualification, something like that. Really positive stuff. The second thing, because this will be happening primarily for, for mature learners, people who are upskilling or uh, perhaps reskilling to take on a, a different career, this is being linked to more flexibility in higher education loans. Uh, so rather than having to take your student loans all in one lump to pay for your fees, and I assume your maintenance, although we didn't say that, uh, you can take it in smaller chunks so you can get shorter courses over a long period of time. So say, for instance, after your A-levels, you could say, okay, I'm going to go and do a higher technical qualification for uh, two years, and then maybe 10 years later, you'd think, I'd like to go and top that up to make a degree. And then in another few years after that, you'd say, well, I'd like to do a master's in something completely different. I'd like to do, say, a law conversion course or something. So this, again, is a really good idea, but it is going to radically change the HE marketplace. There'll be a lot less uh, focus, I think, on the three-year undergraduate degree and a lot more on adult and lifelong learning, which is really healthy. I could argue almost that it sails quite close to what uh, Labour were promising in the 2017 and 2019 elections on the idea of a national education service, or the idea of access to education at the point you need it, rather than having to take it all at the start of your life. Uh, so the, these proposals are going to be fleshed out in a long-expected further education white paper, which we're going to get later this year. We may also get um, more auger response alongside the spending review. For people who haven't been following this, the spending review was supposed to be a four-year thing happening alongside the budget. The budget's been cancelled because of a need to focus on the response to the second wave of uh, COVID-19. And as far as it seems at the moment, the... Um, the spending round is just going to be a one-year thing. It's not going to have the big transformative stuff that perhaps might have been expected. We don't know 
how much of the Olga response, or indeed the Pierce review of TEF, which we've not forgotten about. Um, we don't know if that's going to happen <laughs> alongside it or not. I mean, as a direction of travel, I mean, Sean, can, you know, what, what sort of jumped out at you as the kind of the, 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 the good, the bad and the ugly in, yeah. in, in all this? Great. Well, I, I completely agree with the, the good, um, uh, more flexible funding, additional funding, um, uh, shorter periods of um, study that you can top up. Uh, just that general flexibility, which um, allows um, higher education, I think, to reach um, a, a much greater proportion of the population for whom perhaps it wasn't previously accessible because of the funding structure and, and the award structure. Um, I would hope this sits alongside current provision um, rather than replaces parts of it. I still think we'd got, we would have the question of who didn't go into HE if we contracted current undergraduate provision. Um, so, but I think this is a you know very very welcome addition. Um, I, I am confused every time I see that rhetoric around um, the importance of um, in, increasing vocational and work focused study because um, you know all, all the universities I've ever worked in uh, had any number of vocational awards that have got professional body accreditation. Students go straight into surveying or accounting or law um, or, or nursing or podiatry. Um, they're, they're highly vocational, so I, I always find that rhetoric odd. Um, but I, yeah, totally welcome um, the proposals to become much more flexible, bite-sized about funding. Um, and I also think we need to be much more responsive to, to current employment needs. So um, in Northamptonshire, where University of Northampton is based, um, working with our our um, our LEP. Um, very, very conscious of unemployment patterns and the importance, particularly with um, the effect of COVID, of supporting people retraining and getting back into work um, and getting into new professions. Um, so I think there's an absolute kind of moral duty for universities to be supporting that reskilling agenda. It's, it's risky, though, isn't it? The, the the next couple of months is we're going to get we're going to get a white paper. I think that's going to flesh all this out, um, and then the, and I guess a response to the rest of the org review um, that cut nutrition fees is. is it's still on the table, really. I mean, it's kind of been it's kind of been forgotten about in in the pandemic. But I mean, I mean, the sector's gonna the sector's gonna push back quite hard against um, cuts in its funding, particularly this year when there's been all sorts of unexpected costs in, in preparing for COVID and and also complete bedlam in the in the kind of the market for for student places. Sorry, that I mean, more of a notable. comment than a question. <laughs> it was, wasn't it, Mark? Um, it is notable that uh, uh, Philip Auger himself has uh, distanced himself from the fee cut and it's also worth bearing in mind that the proposal that he initially argued needed to be taken as a package meant that the university would not lose funding so the uh the uh funding would be topped up although potentially selectively topped up by the treasury at the moment with the amounts that the treasury is currently spending and the amount of i mean let's face it we're looking at tax rises we're looking at public service cuts in the medium term um, it would seem surprising if they would want to do that at this point. Surprising, but not impossible. <laughs> yeah, I think we can go with that. Yeah. Mm, mm. If I could link it to the um, the discussion about student fee refunds at the mm. moment, I think um, so. Some of the, the the challenges with that are um, it, that we work. Let's t- take degrees that have got professional body accreditation. We work to specific professional outcomes that are benchmarked. Those haven't dropped. With the arrival of COVID, as, as you said, our costs have gone up as we um, deliver awards in much more complex ways to achieve those same outcomes. Um, so 
the the outcome of the degree is held at the same benchmark. Our costs have gone up and not down. Um, so the the effect of taking the funding out, I think, would have to be a, a reduction in the quality of what we offer. Um, and I. I don't see that that benefits anybody. Well, one of the consequences, I think, of the fee system is that we're already talking about, or well, people, I should say, are already talking about whether fees are going to be reimbursed. We're like three minutes into the academic year. So how you could possibly make a judgment about whether the students have got the kind of full value out of their course of study at this point is obviously ridiculous, but it's just the mindset, I think, that the fee system has brought into, um, um, particularly in the media. So now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Uh, this week, I was charmed to see uh, Michael Goodyear in the New Statesman argue that there was a correlation between student neighbourhoods in England and COVID-19 cases. But does that stack up? I've plotted last week's COVID cases against students in term time residence for those tiny lower super output areas I've been using for England. It's the same data that underpins the dashboard on Wonky. Uh, because of limitations in the data the uh, data, I'm only looking at the LSOs with uh, more than two cases of uh, COVID-19. But is there a correlation between the number of students in a tiny area and the number of cases of COVID-19? Well, I'm going to say no, and I'm just going on the basis that I heard a news report about Merseyside this morning that mentioned the University of Liverpool, but then mentioned a whole load of places in Merseyside that have got spikes in covid um, that would not be student accommodation areas. So I'm going with no, it doesn't correlate. I also think it doesn't correlate. I'm not sure the data would have caught up by now, and obviously students are still moving. So, and just thinking about where there are kind of hot spots, you know, I can't in my mind kind of necessarily rate them all to kind of high high student areas. So I'm going to say no. Well, you're both right on a national level. Yay! There's no correlation. R squared is 0.03, so that's rubbish really you can get a better you can get <laughs> well done, a better correlation though by looking at like individual areas so if you look at the local authority of coventry you get a correlation of 0.9 which is pretty scary but that's entirely down to a skew because the lsoa in which the university of uh, warwick sits has got a lot of cases linked to it so i've taken the data from the gisc tailored data service as i did before and public health england and as always where the data doesn't exist i've not plotted it look for the graph on the site later now just before we do our final item a couple of minutes just to tell you about an event we've got coming up uh at wonky uh the latest in our wonky at home series uh, the new normal two Uh, the return to campus and what happens next so what's all this about well the return to campus is finally here and after a painful few months of planning for the worst an untimely second peak of covid19 means the worst fears of university managers staff and anxious parents might just be coming to pass Uh, so we'd like you to join us for a wonky at home special following our event in may on the new normal i'll be marking the new academic year reviewing how reopening campuses is going thinking through the local and national practical issues, tracking and tracing the big and small political implications of it all and asking what might be coming round the corner for your gold command working groups to start thinking about now. We'll ask how the start of term is going. We'll hear early reports from socially distanced teaching and social activities from around the UK, from students, student unions and staff. 
Uh, we'll hear about local attempts at testing regimes, the latest in COVID campus fashion, uh, and we'll ask our students following university rules and government guidelines. How can we encourage them to? What happens to students confined to student accommodation in local or national lockdowns? Is the government about to remember uh, a sector it largely seemed to forget about for much of this year? And what does happen over Christmas? Wonky at Home, the new normal too. Do join us. We'd love to see you there. Further details and how to sign up are on wonky.com forward slash events. So it's the start of Black History Month. And after uh, several weeks and months of the Black Lives Matter movement um, really coming to the fore, um, universities have been considering their responsibilities when it comes to tackling racism uh, on a level we've not seen in a long time. Joe, where have we got to with this? Well, as ever, there's a number of um, activities that are taking place around the university um, as part of Black History Month. One of the uh, really exciting things that have happened this week is the launch of a new uh, uh, London network of universities with uh, Imperial King's College, GCL and LSE forming an alliance to champion race equality. Uh, so really excited to see what comes from that. But obviously the context this year is quite different uh, following the tragic murder of of George Floyd and quite rightly universities have been responding to that um, over the past few months. I know um, uh, at Imperial we've, we've, we've done a lot of work on this. Um, I was reading Shaminda Takar's um, uh, article on Wonky today and I think there's some really good points in there. But firstly about thinking about the kind of the institutional um, 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 issues uh, that are affecting uh, the experiences of our students and our, and our staff uh, but also about individuals taking responsibilities for, for, for their behaviour, about building communities of white allies um, uh, and, and providing kind of um, the language and the space for people to discuss these, these difficult issues. So that really resonates with the work we've been trying to do uh, at, at Imperial. Um, there's some really interesting resources around um, being uh, a white ally. If you look, look at our website, if you search for Imperial College White Allies, there's some really interesting resources there. We've done some uh, important institutional work, some quite high profile things that the, uh, frankly, I think we got quite a lot of kickback for, but I think that's probably means we're doing the right things uh, some symbolic things like removing uh, the, um, the the motto uh, which kind of obviously links us to our kind of um, imperial roots from from our crest which again start you know is uh, we've got a lot of pushback for start a lot of debate but it's, it's those kind of things which mean that you're having those discussions uh, and creating the environment where it's actually okay to uh, to engage on these issues uh, on an individual basis that sounds great joe um the, the um, alliance sounds really good um, and also the the material on white allies, because obviously there's a, there's a lot of us in higher education. There's a, a very large proportion of us um, would count ourselves as people who are white allies or potential white allies. Absolutely, so I think and it's I really think, important we do that properly and well. And I think it's about you know, as I say, creating the environment and and kind of always having the language to to talk about it. So if I think back, probably beginning of this year, I've never really heard the word microaggressions or really understood what it meant. But now it's a really useful kind of frame for, for me to understand a bit better what the experience of staff and students is at the college. And, you know, we can we can spot over awful racism but but some of the the kind of those meta behaviors that affect how people feel uh, and their sense of inclusion in the community are actually a little bit more difficult to, to understand until you ha unless you have the language to to talk about it so you know you don't like to talk about kind of positive impacts of what's happened this year but but actually if we can make this sustainable that it has a lasting effect on our culture and our behaviors um, um well i think it's just essential that we do do that yeah i mean i'm just looking at uh the uh, gap in uh, degree outcomes 
between white students and black students, it has been shrinking over the past decade, but we're still at 22.1 uh, percentage points, which is utterly horrifying, quite frankly. How is that uh, possible? Um, so what it's been good to see the sector starting to do, and obviously this is a long, sustained period of work, it's not a problem that can be fixed overnight, and it's not a problem that we can expect that if we just listen to people of colour, then that's all the work we need to do. There's a lot more work to be done. But uh, to fix that particular problem, the proportion of graduates that are, are, are getting a first or a two-one, um, you need to start with looking at where students of colour are at entrance to university and before then the kind of educational experiences they've had. We need to look at the experience that students and staff of colour are having at university and how that is affecting the way in which learning can happen and be supported. And we need to look also at uh, uh, society uh, kind of more widely. I mean, universities sit within a location, they sit within a culture, they sit within a place and we need to be thinking about the, those places and the experiences that people of colour have being brought into these places. So uh, it's great to see, I mean, the uh, uh, Guild HE stuff. Uh, um, it's uh, kind of just a matter of restarting the conversation, bringing the conversation into the conversations that are already having, rather than just starting a separate conversation just about this particular measure of inequality it's bringing it in and making sure it's in the foreground of all conversations and um if that kind of stuff is happening if people are tackling this as a serious structural problem rather than uh, just a matter of the work that we all should be doing anyway which is uh clamping down on the egregious examples the uh the uh poorly considered statements, the iconography of universities and the way that can exclude people of colour. Um, it does feel like that we're starting to do the real work here and this is very positive and I really hope that it continues. I think you're right to bring up the data because obviously you know, it's not just about kind of uh, student attainment or, or student recruitment but then we've got to look at staff recruitment, we've got to look at progression through the kind of academic roles uh, and it's really important that you know this type of work that we've been talking about is effective, but it's not effective if it just makes us feel better. It's effective if it's then reflected in the data. So you're absolutely right to bring that up. We've got to be really honest with ourselves over a long period uh, and see whether the work that we're doing has a has a tangible impact on people's outcomes. Yeah, I completely agree, and I think we ha we have to be very systematic about it. I think it's um, I think we've talked about it for a long time, and I don't think um, c collectively we've done enough to put our money where our mouth is and really looked at our recruitment practices. And um, back to DK's earlier point, actually, in, in a previous institution, we did look at student entry levels and we, the variation in outcomes was being introduced after students joined the university um, between um, black minority ethnic students and white students. They were coming in with very similar entry qualifications. Um, we do know that the, that, um, the kind of um, qualification maybe prepares students differently. So BTEC, um, which um, we often see um, more BME students coming in with BTEC, it seems to be less um, well matched to the way we teach but of course that's then a challenge for the way we teach that we, we make sure that the teaching is meeting the students where they are um, and I, I, I agree as well about iconography and you know just the importance of making sure that when we look at um, the images around the university that they're representative of um, our current student community because uh, most places I've worked they haven't been 
um, they've, they've represented and the university as it's been in the past. I'm conscious that we've also not mentioned the changes to the curriculum, mm-hmm. which I know a lot of academics are struggling with this, and it yes. is a difficult concept to deal with. I mean, there are uh, resources and books out there to support academics in all subjects. I mean, people always uh, focus on literature or politics, but it's the same deal in the sciences. It's, it's the same it's deal everything. in the arts. It's <laughs> yeah, everything. It's and everything. Um, well, we're, it's early days, um, so we've we've got staff who are interested in decolonising their curriculum, um, and many are looking for guidance. So we're we're starting to put that in place, but it's new. It's new to all of us. We're all learning. Um, it is a big challenge. Um, most of us working in UK higher education have come through a system um, which educated us uh, in a, a, a kind of Western. Um, imperial culture so we're having to relearn that now um, so it, it's um, it's a challenge but I think um, really understanding that it's our responsibility to do that is important I think that um, the, the white allies ideas around white privilege and understanding what the consequences of that are and that it's our responsibility to change that you know, it's not the responsibility of um, BME students or colleagues to educate us it's our responsibility to educate ourselves ourselves I think is the is the starting point for this so that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via apple Podcasts or your favorite android podcast directory or find the feed you need on wonky.com podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on the wonky show drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch so thanks to joe Charles, and dk and everyone at team wonky for making it happen behind the scenes until next week stay safe and stay wonky.